0: This class portion is part two of Yitro, or Yitro, or if you're from Texas, Jethro. <clears throat> and it's going to be found in chapter 19, starting with verse one of Shemot, which would be the book of Exodus. Shemot 19, Parsha Yitro, starting with verse one. I'll be reading from Hamash first. In the third month from the exodus of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, on this day they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from Rephidim and arrived at the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness, and Israel encamped there opposite of the mountain. Moshe ascended to God, and Hashem called to him, from the mountain, saying, So shall you say to the house of Yaakov, and relate to the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to Egypt, and that I have bore you on the wings of eagles, and brought you back to me, or brought you to me. Now if you hearken well to me, and observe my commandments, uh, my covenant, you shall be to me the most beloved treasure of all people, for mine is the entire world. You shall be to me a kingdom of ministers and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. Moshe summoned the elders of the people and put them all, or put before them all these words that Hashem had commanded them. The entire people responded together and said, Everything that Hashem has spoken, we shall do. We'll stop right there. Let's go back up. In the last class, Yithro, Moshe's father-in-law, shows up with Gershom and uh, Eliezer. And uh, from his visit, decides to become a part of the Jewish people and offers Moshe some pretty important advice. And that was, you can't uh, disseminate the knowledge of Torah and do all of the uh, judging of disputes and questions from the people all yourself. They stand all day long waiting for you to to speak to them and it's not fair for the people. Yithro provides an amazing insight and Moshe goes to Hashem and obviously knows that this is wise decision. We learned last week in the class that Yithro was like the Pope, if that can make sense. Uh, Yithro was probably the leading authority of, of the world religion. They he was sought after by counsel from Pharaoh and other kings of the region because of his knowledge of world religion. It seemed that Yithro was that knowledgeable because he truly deep down inside was a seeker, one who wanted to know and to understand Hashem. I would think that some people, and we said this the other day, come on in, welcome, make yourself comfortable, that... um, that there are a lot of people who, whose journey takes them in all different paths and avenues of spirituality and understanding, uh, but ultimately it's, to, it's intended to bring them to the foot of Mount Sinai with Moshe. Uh, we have people that we know that are on their own spiritual quest that may have not been raised in a proper religious home, and, but they're on their own spiritual quest. And we have got to encourage them by being light, by being a testimony of Hashem. Moshe, I doubt, very seriously attempted to, quote-unquote, what's the word for it, Um, uh, convert Yithro to to Jewish thought. But yet, Moshe lived in his home. He witnessed the character and integrity of Moshe. Moshe was a very humble man. We understand the biblical concept that God debases the proud and lifts up the humble. And in this text, we see that Moshe being the utmost of a humble human being, that God calls him up to the mountain. He draws him up high. And so this humility was something that was noted by Yithro. But it wasn't just the humility of Moshe. It was Moshe's love for Hashem, It was Moshe's dedication to the one God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw that even though Moshe was raised in the house of Pharaoh and received the finest of education from the Egyptian uh, uh, culture and was refined, looked like an Egyptian, because when he came to save his daughter, the report was this Egyptian saved me from this band of... of, of, uh, you know wayward shepherds and he's thinking no egyptian would do that this must be a very special man and so it was the testimony of moshe's love for hashem but the the greatest of all is when he heard of what happened in egypt when he heard how the idolatrous uh, deities and religion of egypt fell before the almighty that was the testimony and we talked about what was it going to be like in the redemption at the end of age when uh, Mashiach is able to pierce this this physical. The soul of Mashiach comes into man, into uh, Mashiach here to lead uh, Israel back home, and we will see what will be the the destruction of all idolatry in the world, and what will call all idolatrous people to know the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will be when the miracle of redemption takes place. When they see all of the house of Israel get set free from their mitzrayim, from their narrow place. If you look, there are more Jews in the United States than there are in Israel, right? Uh, You would think that everyone should want to go home. But that's not the case, is it? Why? It's comfortable here. It's all right. But, but in the end of age, we will see the miraculous return of the people to the land. Already Israel has seen an increase in those doing Aliyah and those becoming more observant. And we're also seeing an increase in the nations of people who have not been raised Jewish, who are of, of the nations coming to Torah and taking upon themselves the yoke of heaven there is most definitely the sign of redemption someone asked me this week about the four blood moons did you have you seen that sort of being circulated around the internet and yeah there's supposed to be four blood moons over the next four major um, Jewish feast and uh, I, I assume that in Christian theology there is this whole whole eschatological idea around it, right? That the four blood moons represent, you know, uh, the end of the world. And someone asked me what my opinion was. And I said, well, well, it's obvious that, that astronomy tells us that that is going to happen. It's just a natural effect that's going to happen. And we all know that each time that this has happened in the past, something amazing has happened with the state of Israel and the Jewish people. But it doesn't take blood moons to let for for righteous people to know that Hashem is doing something amazing in the nations. Right now, we don't need to have blood moons and a sign saying, you know, we, you know, the redemption's coming for us to know that. We all know that something is coming. We don't look for our signs in the world; we look for Hashem, and that's what Moshe did. In this text, it says, "On the third month from Exodus." Uh, the children of Sinai, the children came to uh, journeyed from Rephidim and arrived in, at the mountain across from Sinai. We see an interesting uh, dynamic that takes place. There is a Midrash that says that when Moshe went up to the mountain, that the kings of the nations, those in the nearby nations, came to observe what happened. And they were offered by Hashem to follow His commandments and ordinances. And the king says, so what's in it? Like, can you tell us what it's about? And he says, no, dismissed. You don't have to know. You don't need to know. Because if you're more concerned to what's in it than making the decision to follow me, then you shouldn't be the one. And then when he gets to his people, what is their remark? We'll do whatever he says. Did they have any clue... What was going to be in these commandments? No, they didn't. They had no idea. Why is that so important? Because that demonstrates the great trust of the people of God. They just trust Hashem. They trust Him. Because we understand that His goodness far exceeds anything that He would bring about in destruction on the nations and upon His creation. Sometimes, it's easy for us to get set aside with our emotions in our relationship to Torah and Hashem. We start beating ourselves up and we get discouraged. We feel like, you know, I haven't done as good as I could have. You know, I haven't been as faithful as I could have. I could have done more, you know. And then all of a sudden we read a text like this where Hashem just wants you to trust what He is going to do. And every little bit that you do counts for everything in His eyes. He's like a, He's like your father, right? I know of no father that would reject a son or a daughter who submits himself or herself. I don't know a father that would reject you, and I don't know a father, even a son or a daughter, that has not sort of lived up to the standards, you know, that is expected that doesn't at some level try to do the very best that they don't just absolutely become overjoyed by that son or daughter's uh, desire. When Moshe descended to the mountain, Hashem asked him to, uh, or says to hearken or to listen to my word or my mimra, uh my word of my uh, wisdom. He says, commit yourself. My covenant shall be to me, the most beloved treasure of all peoples for mine and the entire world, you shall be a kingdom of ministers and a holy nation. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? To be ministers and a holy nation. What is the job of the Jewish people? To bring about and minister Torah to the nations. Unfortunately, has not been an easy job for them. Right? it's not been very well accepted. Up till now, it's been fairly rejected by the nations. Correct? It's been rejected by the nations. So, he says, Moshe came and summons the elders of the people and put them all before the words uh, before them. These words that Hashem had commanded them. The entire people responded, "Everything that Hashem has spoken will do." Moshe brought back the words of the people to Hashem. Hashem said to Moses, Behold, I I come to you in the thickness of of the cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you and they will believe in you forever. Moshe related the words of the people to Hashem. One of the, I guess we consider a proof text of the authority of the Torah and Jewish thought is this. Most world religions are established by one individual who has an epiphany, right? He sees this great sign, an angel comes and appears to him in a mountain in Washington, uh, I mean, New York somewhere, and shows him the Urim and the Theorem and the magical lens that they could read from the golden plates, or that... Uh, he ascends to a high mountain in Asia somewhere and sees the great light and becomes the great teacher. And I'm not saying that those things may, could not have happened to them, right? But clearly not witnessed. This here, can you imagine if Moshe would have come down off of a mountain that had no smoke, that didn't have the sound of the shofar, and come down and say, okay, first of all, you can't build a fire on Shabbos. Like, what do you want us to do? Freeze to death? Right? Or you have to... You, uh, you, you can't pick up sticks on the Shabbos. Or if you see a bird, don't take the mother and the egg together. Leave the, leave the, uh, the bird unmolested. Take the egg. Well, who, who makes up some of these things? Right? You must think, well, why... Why would the Creator care about those things? If, Moshe, if they would have thought for a second Moshe made that stuff up, do you think they would have followed him? No. Of course not. What would have happened is they would have said, well, who told you this? Everyone heard. When we see this thing lay out, you're going to realize that every one of the people heard what was going on. It was witnessed by everyone. It wasn't by, by a handful of people who said this is what happened. It wasn't witnessed by somebody who wrote about it four, five, six hundred years, a thousand years later. It was witnessed by a group of people who all testified that this is the voice of Hashem. We heard it ourselves. Witnessed by everyone. Moshe could not pull the wool over these people's eyes. Now there were some later on that we'll see. Korah, remember Korah? There are some who's going to say, well, uh, did you really hear that from God? Right? But what is that? It's the voice of Hasatan, the whisperer, right? The one who says, did God actually say that? We all understand that that is the Yetzirah speaking from these people's heart and wasn't the true facts and evidence. In this case, we're going to see that God speaks from the holy mountain and all the people will hear exactly what Moshe is told. I, I can't even begin to fathom that. I mean... We've seen phenomenal movies and we can come up with some great, you know, imagery possibly. But can you imagine hearing a download of the commandments of God to Moshe and it sounds like a rumbling of shofar and you see the vibrating of the Torah in the air and in the sand all around you. Can you imagine the the information overload that that would have been for the people? But they asked for it, and they got it. Toyota, right? Y'all don't remember that commercial, do you? That shows you how old you are. All the young people were like, that was silly. Um, Hashem said to Moshe, verse 10, Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. They shall wash their clothing. Let them be prepared for the third day, for on the third day Hashem shall descend in the sight of the entire people on the mountain. You shall set boundaries for the people round about, saying, beware of ascending the mountain or touching its edge. Whosoever touches the mountain shall surely die. A hand shall not touch it, for he shall surely be stoned or thrown down or pierced. Whether animal or person, he shall not live. Upon an extended blast of the shofar, they may ascend uh, the mountain. Moshe descended from the mountain to the people. He sanctified the people. They washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be prepared for three-day period. Do not draw near to a woman. Let me stop there. Let's take care of a couple of things that might be misunderstandings about the text. I think the best explanation for chapter, I mean, verse 12, uh, came from Rabbi Gordon uh, of Chabad. He talked about the third rail in uh, the transportation system of the transit system in, in, uh, in New York, right? He says there's two rails that the train rides on, but there's a third rail that supplies all the electricity for the train. And that it's absolutely noted all over the place, do not touch the third rail. Now, we do not make the assumption that the transit authority is cruel and mean and the city government of New York is cruel and unusual because they won't let the citizens touch the third rail. We wouldn't even assume that, right? What do we assume? For safety's sake, you shouldn't touch the third rail. But why is it that people automatically start saying, "Ah, you see, God's being cruel and mean. He said He's going to kill people if they come and touch the mountain. They they are looking at it at the wrong, in the wrong way. He knew that if any of them touched the mountain, because the place was so sanctified and holy, because the very Shekinah of Hashem descends upon the mountain, that they would be destroyed. Does He want them to be destroyed? Of course not. He doesn't want them to be destroyed. So that's the whole idea. That makes entirely good sense for us. The next thing is this idea of holiness. I would like to... To uh, share some insight about holiness and the need for holiness to receive Torah. The need for holiness to receive Torah. Moshe descended on the mountain. He sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be prepared for three day period, do not draw near to a woman. The idea was not to have relationship there have been those who in their possible sexist views have said things that were not proper, i.e. women are unclean or they can come up with all kinds of things to say this is a sexist remark. But it wasn't about that at all. First of all, if you'll notice in the text, let's go back, and it says in the text... Verse 6, hold on, might have to go back a little bit further, hold on. Um, verse 3 of chapter 19, verse 3 of chapter 19 Moses ascended, uh, Moshe ascended to God and Hashem called for him mountain of sin so shall you say to the house of Yaakov and relate to the children of Israel these two words these two phrases are very very important whenever you see the phrase to the house of Yaakov he's talking about the women the house does it make sense that's where the women that's their domain that's the thing that they are the the you know the the queen of their house. So it says to the house of Yaakov, and relate it to the children of Israel, which are the men. Why does Hashem ask Moshe to relate it first to the women? I'm sure you women can come up with a few ideas. They They will listen, number one. Number two, the vast majority of people who are coming to Torah who've never had Torah in their life, are women. Why? Adam, in the Garden of Eden, was told by Moshe to not eat of that tree. Of all the trees of the Garden you can eat, but of that tree you shall not eat. Adam was told by God. What did I say? I'm sorry, Adam was told by God. Thank you very much. I'm still in, in Exodus. Thank you. Adam was told by Moshe. Yeah, that he could have told him. I mean, you know, we don't know. Somewhere in the Zohar, it might talk about Adam and Moshe having a conversation. I, I do know in one of the midrashim it says it says that Moshe, when he went up to uh, to Hashem, when he drew up to Hashem, uh, he saw Rabbi Akiva and two other rabbis talking about the command uh, talking about the commandments of Torah. And he, he was amazed to see these great teachers and asked Hashem, why didn't you just send them? Why didn't you just send their soul down and have them do it? So, who knows? But, let's go back to the story. Adam, told by Hashem, that he should not eat of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Adam do? Well, he didn't eat. It was the woman's fault, right? Listen to his <laughs> wife. He didn't tell his wife, did he? There's no record of him ever telling his wife. None. So she, when she heard the snake, you know, what Adam probably told her was exactly what she said. We are told to, uh, that if we eat, we are, let's see, what did, uh, what did um, Hasatan say? We can't even touch it. We can't even touch it. There you go, there you go. So what did Adam do? He's busy trying to polish his new Mercedes. You know, he's going to go take a trip, business trip somewhere, and Eve says, I'm going to be left here at the house. He says, don't worry. She says, any last instructions? Yes. Don't even touch that tree. Is that what Hashem said? No. Why was it important for him to tell exactly what Hashem said? Because she wouldn't have been fooled. Because I can almost picture in my mind, in my comedic twisted mind, Satan said, see, look, I touch it, I don't touch it, I touch it, I don't touch it. See, anything happened to me, you touch it, you touch it, don't touch it. Don't. Did anything happen to you? And she's like, no, nothing's happened to me at all. Well, it must have all been just a made-up story by, by my husband. So now you see what the problem is, right? The problem is, is, is if Hashem would have told Eve, to not do that, she would have made sure that her husband did not do it as well. And she wouldn't have done it. So why is the woman told first? Why do they say that you speak to the house of Yaakov? There's something pure. We've said it again about the soul of a woman who can perceive the things of Hashem. They just intuitively know these things. There are just things that they know that is right. I don't understand it. It's a mystery to me, but the evidence should be in this room. Look around, guys. Look around. You're outnumbered. Just naturally, you just know, and it's even without having great scholarship in Torah or the Hebrew language. Just something natural is in you. Speak to the 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 women, and then speak to the men. But then we have this text that says to not be near a woman or do not have relationship with a woman for three days. The issue is this, is that a man could purify himself by mikvah, purely after a relationship. But a woman cannot do that because of the seed would still be in her. So the impurity from the man is still in her. Does it make sense? So this wasn't about the woman being impure. It was the fact that what was remaining of the man is still therefore making her incapable of coming close to Mount Sinai. We should learn something very powerful from this whole idea of sanctification and holiness. We're all very aware that The only holiness that we can draw down is the holiness that Hashem gives us, correct? It's, it's not our commandments that we're able to follow. But in this situation, there wasn't a whole list of commandments. There was something that needed to be purified in their physical environment, but also going to a much deeper level. Something had to happen deep down inside of each one of them that Hashem saw them as achad, as one people he uses the singular term when he describes the encampment or the camp of the people. Why? Because Hashem for the first time saw His people in their unity, in their uh, oneness, in the beauty of how they were all coming with a one-track mind toward receiving the Torah from Hashem. He saw that even though the, the in Midrash it says that they came with one eye on Sinai. Now what does that mean? One eye on Sinai. It said that they had one eye on Sinai and another eye looking around for a golden calf. But even the one eye was a sanctified moment to Hashem. Now I want you to think about this. Even the one eye. Even the one eye. Religion loves, especially religions of the world, love to... Pronosticate how, how God loves to mete out judgment and punishment to people. But what He is looking for is at least the one eye. He's just wanting you to take the moment. Three days. Three days. Three days was enough to bring down Hashem's Shekinah. Shekinah, I, I keep saying it wrong. It's amazing, three days. How do we in the 21st century prepare ourselves to receive Torah is a very important question to ponder and we all should consider it. What is your routine before you study? Do you properly wash your hands? Do you say blessings? Do you sanctify Hashem? Do you also spend time each evening examining your soul? before Hashem, and closely examining your heart and to make sure if there's anything that I'm going to bed, I pray with, that is something that has made me in an unclean state. You ask God to forgive you and to have mercy upon you. For in the day of judgment, these things will be brought up if they're not, if you don't do tshuva, right? Right? I believe the reason why most of you in this room are capable of grabbing a hold of Torah in the way that you have and this is an amazing community and even those who watch the teaching and I'm amazed I mean I get texts. my wife I was telling my wife yesterday I received two or three texts from individuals outside of this community elsewhere in the United States one lady's like I'm on I'm on a bus Uh, On a field trip with my kids, and my, uh, you know, one of the parents quoted me a verse and was trying to convince me of something, but I just don't know how to respond. What do I say? And I was able to send her some verses. The reason why that you're capable, uh, that that you have this ability to come into a class, having never went to Hebrew school, never raised in a shul, never been in. In an environment of studious Torah learning, can come in here and all of a sudden the lights turn on. It's because you have had a long journey in your own particular life of purification and a desire to draw near to Hashem. And you have lived a life that has required you to be sanctified before Hashem and living a holy life. It's called ascending. You have constantly been on this journey to ascend to higher places. And for many of you, it's been a very long, difficult journey. But I want you to know Hashem is so pleased by your deep desire. And even with the children of Israel, three days, it's all, three days, they were ready to receive. So my question is, what extra effort could you do to bring down more holiness in your life that would help you open up the windows of heaven in your study of Torah what little things some of the things that we've discussed over the period are things that really you can't put a finger on maybe charity would be one giving of charity but let's look at some internal sanctification guarding your tongue guarding your tongue Guard what you say and talk and say about other people. Why, is, why do I believe that guarding your tongue is more important than anything out there? This would be the reason. Every, every person is a, a product of the creation of Hashem. They are a product of His Word, right? <clears throat> His word of wisdom. Every human being. And any human being that I tear apart, any human being I tear apart and disassemble their character, regardless of who they are, I am running the risk of tearing apart Hashem's holy name. Does it make sense? When I speak evil against someone, even though it may be true, I've got to guard my soul. Why do I not want to speak evil? It's not because I really like that other person that much. It's not like that I respect them. It's, as a matter of fact, it, I, I probably won't even, wouldn't even trust the individual. But it's not speaking of failing to speak evil because of that person. I don't want to speak evil because of this person. What does it do to my soul? What does it do to my soul? How about unchecked anger? We, we understand that these concepts that are found in Torah about the soul, the reins of our soul, the reins of our heart, we, we hear these terms. That, uh, the idea is that our organs sort of represent our spiritual makeup. The higher level of the soul is where? In the mind, correct? It's not down here. It's in the mind. Why is it in the mind? It's the gray space. It's the white space. It's the pure space. It's full of water. Right? Water representing the, the watering of Torah in your life. It's the center part of thought, of emotion, of action, of deed, everything. The liver is one solid blob of what? Blood. Blood. What are, we, what are we reminded of with the liver? The red-headed stepchild, the no, red-headed child, right? Esau, right? Esau, what does your liver do? It collects what? Garbage, Garbage and waste. It's the central repository of everything that is polluted. When we operate out of our anger, we are operating out of that which is vile and polluted, our liver. Does that make sense? When we operate out of our frustration with people, we're operating from the lowest element of our human nature. It's not from up here. What do people say when they get mad and they do something or say something they shouldn't say? What do they say? Oh, must have lost my mind. I didn't mean to say that. They literally went out of their mind into the deepest place of their their being folks that can affect your understanding of Hashem. that can affect your understanding of Torah and so I'm hoping that after this lesson today that we can all leave here with a new sense of desire and yearning to develop higher levels of holiness in our life and listen I have been the, the what's, what's the word for it? I have had to deal with this more than I think anybody else because of my sense of twisted humor, right? <laughs> and it's not that I've lost my humor, I've learned to keep my humor in check. And it's been difficult, and it still is very difficult, because I think it, Baruch Hashem, He's not going to judge me for what I think. <laughs> he's going to judge me for what I do and say, Right? <laughs> everybody say Baruch Hashem yeah. <laughs> we think a lot of things but we don't say it but I'm telling you it's very difficult for an individual that constantly is looking on the negative side of life how's that song go from look on the bright side, look on the bright side <laughs> of life sunny side, sunny side of life To look on the sunny side of life, it is really hard to think of a glass being 80% full instead of 20% empty or whatever the view might be, right? Half full, half empty. But my question is, is can a negative attitude affect my ability to receive Torah? Yes, it absolutely can. If I'm constantly um, obsessing about negative things, can that affect my ability to absorb Torah? Yes. These are levels of holiness that are rarely talked about and mentioned. Yes, it's easy to go, you know, it's actually easy to go give tzedakah, you know, give charity. It's easy to go do something, you know, to take care of the poor, or something uh, to show justice because it's a public thing and it makes you feel awfully good. But the hardest person to help sometimes is the person that is shackled to the Harar, the evil inclination. That is the hard person to help. And it is easy for us to hide sometimes that we are shackled to that. Because no one else sees that. No one else knows. But the idea of what polluted the woman was not her, but what was in her. Does that make sense? And the idea is that what we do internally has everything to do with whether we can receive the eternal, right? The, The majesty of Hashem wants to descend upon the life of those who seek Him. He wants to. But there are some who will never be able to even come near the mountain, much less touch it. Right, None of us are able to touch that until we die. Does that make sense? Because no one can see Hashem un- unless they're, they're dead. So the idea is no one will touch the face of Hashem. No one will engage Him at that level unless you have already passed from this life. So the closest that we're going to get is what we do to sanctify ourselves to draw near. Korban, to come near to Hashem. That's what we do. So as we... Examine our our life, and as we look deep within ourselves, we must ask ourselves: Have I properly sanctified myself, and do I continually to do it? Continue to do it, so that Hashem's knowledge can be infused in my mind, so that I can actually see and experience these things. Next, on the third day, verse sixteen, Shemos. Chapter 19, verse 16. On the third day, when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning and a heavy cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the shofar was very powerful. The entire people was in the camp shuddered. Moses brought the people forth from the camp toward God, and they stood at the bottom of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was smoking because Hashem had descended upon it in, a, in the fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the entire mountain shuddered exceedingly. The sound of the shofar grew continually much stronger. This idea of the shofar, it it started off sort of low. It echoed through. Have you guys heard some of these? I don't know if they're hoaxes or not, but how people have played videos, and Mm -hmm. you can hear these strange sounds. That sort of reminded me of what possibly it started off to be. But then it grew so loud that uh, it, was, it was terrifying. Uh, this sound of the sho- shofar grew continually much stronger. Moshe would, would speak, and God would respond to him with a voice. Hashem descended upon the mountain, on top of the mountain. Hashem summoned Moshe to the top of the mountain, and Moshe ascended. And Hashem said to Moshe, Descend, warn the people, lest they break through to see Hashem, and the multitude of them will fall. Even the Kohanim who approach Hashem should be prepared, lest Hashem burst forth against them. Y'all remember seeing like these romantic movies in which the husband or wife gets off the plane or off the boat or comes through this large meadow and they're running slow motion. and and they have the great music, and it's it's slow, and it takes forever, and they're running, they're rushing to each other. This idea that is planted here, if you can just see for a moment how eager, how eager the Creator wants to descend upon His people, and how eager at that moment that they wanted to literally rush into the arms of Hashem, and yet they can't touch each other. They can't touch each other. And it's this great, eager anticipation. It's like seeing a bride and a groom at their wedding ceremony, in which the bride has been sequestered and the groom has not seen her. And he sees her appear through the back of the crowd as she descends into the wedding party and he sees that beautiful dress and tears often flow down the big burly men that see their wife for the first time. And their wives are nervous with anticipation to be married to her husband. This is the image that we just read. It's the eagerness of the high priest to want to rush and go do their job, wanting to serve Hashem Wanting to do everything they can to please the King. And the people's desire to just absolutely abandon everything to run to the mountain into the arms of Hashem. And yet Hashem says, hold on. We have to do this with a process. There's a way of doing this. Because if you touch this mountain, I will rush down and take you home. You will be mine. But you have a job to do. You have a job to do in the world. (laughs) <laughs> if they would have received Torah fully, if there wasn't the golden calf, the redemption would have been f- unfolded right there at that time. Yes, ma'am. One comment. In, in the um, Parsha in Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. Debarim, which also gives a story, Right. it mentions that they were under the mountain, mm-hmm. Tachat, mm-hmm. which so, like a bride and groom. Right, under mm-hmm. a, a chuppah, chuppah. Mm-hmm. They, um, they were being married. Right. right. So Hashem was marrying his bride. Right. So, this beautiful analogy of the bride is, and listen, all of you guys, except for maybe a couple, your day will come, sweetheart, uh, you know, uh, have been brides. You know that, that what, it, what it's like. But imagine, I mean, even the unmarried will understand. The eagerness, what it's going to be like when you get married. Of course, all the married women will say, "Well, let us tell you what it's like after." <laughs> Boy, do I have a story for you! <laughs> if you would have married a shim, that wouldn't have been a problem. You know, that. you would have a glorious marriage. But until yeah, but they, but they get stuck with us. They get stuck with us, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, We can always renew our vows. Correct. You see, and that's what it takes from time to time in any marriage. Absolutely. Renewing your vows. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So does the people renew their vow with Hashem over and over, right? Right after the golden calf, Nechuvah, and then there is death, and then there is rectification. When we talk about ascending to the mountain, I want to guard, help you guard yourself from an idea that is like watching um, the space shuttle take off, right? You boom, big explosion, big light and fire and smoke, and you just take off and you go into outer space. That's not what the ascent to holiness is. The ascent to holiness is like a road that is journeyed. It's full of pitfalls and trip-ups and mistakes. We must understand that holiness is not the absence of um, does not mean the absence of a failure. Holiness is not perfection. Holiness is is ascending, connecting. Holiness is a desire to be near Hashem and to do what it takes to honor Hashem in that. So when we talk about making His name holy, to sanctify His name, when we think of all of these concepts, you realize there are times that you have made mistakes. You realize there are times that you've held on to anger. You realize there's time that you've practiced uh, uh, evil speech. But we know that this is about having moments in which you have descended so that you can ascend. (coughs) When you watch a person climb a mountain, for example, if they go to you the know, highest mountain in the world and they decide to climb, these climbers are not going straight up the whole time. There are times that they're having to climb up a crevice and down a crevice and back up to get up, but it's a constant journey upward. So we have to understand that. Next, he says, verse 23 of... Uh, Chapter 19, Moshe said to Hashem, The people cannot ascend Mount Sinai, for you have warned us, saying, Bound uh, bound the mountain and sanctify it. Hashem said to him, Go descend, then you shall ascend, and Aaron with you. But the Kohanim and the people, they shall not break through to ascend to Hashem, lest he burst forth against them. Moshe descended to the people and said it to them. Chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke to all of uh, of these statements, saying, I am Hashem your God, who has taken you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. You shall not recognize the gods of others in my presence. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of which is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth, you shall not prostrate yourself to them nor worship them, for I am Hashem, your God, a jealous God, who visits the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations for my enemies, but who knows kindness to a thousand generations to those who love me and observe my commandments. You shall not take the name of Hashem, your God, in vain, for Hashem will not absolve anyone who takes his name in vain. So let's look at the first few of these commandments. The Ten Commandments are broken up into two categories one is how they deal with their relationship with Hashem, and the other is how they deal with, in their relationship with their fellow man or woman. You shall have no other gods in the face of God. Can we break that down, and do you understand what that means? What does it mean to have a God in the face of, a, of, of Hashem? Something that's more important to you than Hashem. Right. In our relationships with our spouses, we would really understand this. Some of uh, us men uh, become, uh, what do you call it, uh, workaholics maybe. You know, we our job becomes more important than our spouse. And the spouse begins to feel like, you know, I feel like that I'm second second fiddle in this relationship. That is what we're talking about. Whenever you take a deity and put it in the face of Hashem, meaning that it comes between you and Hashem, that's what we're talking about. You should not make yourself an image of any likeness. Why should you not make an image? Because God has no image. Right? He says you shall not prostrate yourself or worship them because God is a jealous God. He desires your worship and devotion who visits the sins. And this is a question that I think Mary Lou has asked before, right? Uh, But who who visits the sins of the fathers upon upon the children to the third and fourth generations for my enemies. Do you see that? But to those, but who shows kindness for a thousand generations for those who love me and observe my commandments. Does it make sense? So this is why Hashem says to the prophet, You shall not say any more to the people that the fathers eat sour grapes and the sons' teeth are set on edge. A man cannot serve sin for another. A son cannot serve for a father. A father cannot serve for a son. This is what it's talking about. In this verse, this is not talking about uh, visiting the sins of a generation of his people, but of of the enemies of Hashem. What are the enemies of Hashem? Those who disdain Torah. Those who disdain the law of God. Those who are working actively against the people of Hashem. Does it make sense? That's the enemies. They will continue to see, on a whole, punishment from Hashem. God will not tolerate their behavior. Period. So this isn't about the people of God. If you understand what it's talking about. So I've heard people often misquote this and say, Well, this is a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. It says it very clearly. He's talking about the enemies. Not the upon his people. So Rod, so we're saying, you're saying that we don't inherit these curses from our parents that we've generally been told. God's people, absolutely. God's people does not inherit the the sins and the punishment of their parents. Yes ma'am. Yes, not the punishment, but we do teach our children when we do, when by, we by all means, yes. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And your children, if they continue to follow those um, uh, what he called um, iniquitous ways, you know, <coughs> to to walk away from the commandments of Hashem, then they will experience the consequence of their own transgression, right? But all experience the tra- their, the punishment of their own transgression. Not another. I mean, think about how, how um, when you get to know Hashem from Torah, what kind of father would allow the punishment and transgression of other generations to be placed on generations in, in the next? Does it make sense? Can you imagine me starting to punish my son, my grandson, based on my son's behavior? It does not make any sense at all. It defies any human logic. So the idea is Hashim makes it very clear. A father can't eat sour grapes and the son's teeth set on the edge. So they're not going to experience a consequence. However, you are right about when we practice iniquity, then we show our children that. And our children. And this is why you get generations of young people who walk away from Torah because it started with their parents. It started with generations before that. And then at the same time, you see a child who was not raised in a religious home all of a sudden become very religious, more than his parents and grandparents were. So this is down to the individual who desires Hashem. Hashem will bless them for that. Verse 7, You shall not take Hashem's name your God in vain or to make it common. We understand what that means, right? It follows many different ideas, but the... Uh, in the, at the deepest level of understanding, uh, if you are, uh, if put it this way, when you transgress Torah, in many ways you are also n- making His name common because you are now becoming common. You're becoming like the people of the world, the nations. Does that make sense? So at the deepest level, but at the at the up. Uh, you know, the sort of the surface level of understanding, is you sanctify His name. You don't make His name common. We don't throw His sacred name out because we want to sanctify His name. Okay. Six days you shall work and accomplish all of your work, but on the seventh day is Sabbath to assume your God. You shall not do any work your, your son, your daughter, your slave, your maid <laughs> servant, your animal and your convert within the gates, or gear, is the word there uh, within the gates. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that was in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore Hashem blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it. Next is honor your father and mother. <coughs> it is the length of days. Young people listen to that to honor your father and mother. I often get the question, well, what happens if your father and mother were abusive? and, um, you know, treated you badly, um, you can still honor them. Uh, It does not mean that you need to necessarily love them and like them. Does that make sense? You can honor them. How do you honor them? By not speaking evil against them. Whenever you have a relationship with them, you uh, don't open yourself up to be hurt by them anymore. Don't put yourself in that situation if you have to back off. Sometimes the best way to honor them is to have nothing to do with them. Right? But don't speak evil against them. Don't tell everybody about how horrible your parents are or were. Honor them by your words and by your deeds. Make sure you take care of them when they become elderly, too. Uh, You shall not uh, kill, which is murder. does not mean um, like warfare. Uh, commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your fellow. You shall not covet your fellow's house. You shall not covet your fellow's wife, his maidservant, his maids, uh, his uh, manservant, uh, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your fellow. The entire people saw the thunder and the flames and stood, uh, sound and the sound of the shofar and the smoke smoking mountain. The people saw and trembled and stood from afar. They said to Moshe, You speak to us and we shall hear it. Let God not speak to us lest we die. Verse 19 it says, And you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make images of what is with me. Gods of silver, gold, or gold, uh, silver or gods of gold shall you not make for yourself. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall slaughter near it your elevation offering, your peace offerings, your flock, your herd. Whatever I permit, my name is to be mentioned. I shall come to you and bless you. And when you make for me an altar of stones... Do not build them hewn for you have raised uh, your sword over it and desecrated you have not ascended uh, you shall not ascend my altar on steps you sh- oh, so your nakedness will not uh, be uncovered upon it So we get the famous 10 commandments 10 commandments are pretty easy for us to comprehend and understand but within the 10 commandments are they're sort of the abridged version of 613 all of the 613 sort of have roots off of this of this trunk and we can see those things uh, quantified later on that concludes the class we thank you for joining us from the internet and so everyone say shalom, shalom.